This is the Commonwealth City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at commonwealthcitychurch.com and follow us on Instagram at comcitychurch. We hope you enjoy the message. Amen. Um, thank you, Steve. Uh, my name is Andrew. It's good to be with you this morning. And um, we're going to stand in a moment and read the, the word together. But just as a, a little bit of an introduction, um, what do we do with Wilmore? <laughs> right? What, what the Lord has, has brought us down the road. Um, I feel like every church, every pastor is kind of tempted to ask that question on this Sunday ex- explicitly. What do we do with Wilmore? But I would, I would actually invite you to say that's the wrong question. The right question is, how do we respond? Or maybe a better question, you can determine for yourself if it's right or not. Um, better question could be, how do we respond Respond to and join the work that the Lord is doing? And, and that's a question that's actually appropriate to ask every single day, not just in the events or on the heels of, or in the midst of um, something that's significant that seems to be happening. And, and just, to be, just to be open and honest, like, I do think something significant has happened uh, in Wilmore, Kentucky this week. I think something in the last two weeks, I think something significant has happened to the lives of a number of people that have um, been worshiping Jesus literally around the clock, um, that have seen um, the Lord meet them in needs and in uh, so many desires of their heart, that have seen, uh, you know, incredible moves of the Holy Spirit, just not only to save people, but to heal people, to um, set people free. Like, I, I want to, to be extremely aware of the things that God has done and, and is doing um, wrapped around this movement down the road. Um, and in fact, when it comes to defining what's going on, like we've heard all the terminology, right? Like it's a revival. It's a, is it a revival? Is it a movement? Is it an awakening? Is it an outpouring? Uh, is it an event? What's going on? And the answer is yes, that's the answer. It's a little bit of all of those things, you know, to some people and and maybe, maybe this is just my understanding, like the definition of revival seems to be held um, specifically to those that are already believers, that they are revived in the life that they've been given in Christ. Um, there's awakening that's taking place in the hearts of people that are coming to see Jesus for the first time. There is certainly, without doubt, a move of the Spirit taking place in, in people's lives. You know, there, there is a work that's being done. I think you could apply all of, those, all of those labels, if you want to use labels, kind of a, a, across the gamut of it all and say that there's somebody that fits almost every category. There are certainly some that, are, that have looked at Asbury as a tourist attraction as well. Like that happens as well. And that has not new to our day and age. That has long been happening. You know, in fact, Jesus used to say all the time to, to the Pharisees in his day, like, you guys seem to know everything and yet you miss me. You miss me. And there's, a, there's a, a bit of what's going on down the road that the, the reality is and what's going on in, in our area, not just down the road, but in our area among our people, there, there's a little bit of, a, of even a determinist view that says we will continue to see the ripple effects of God's move and his way and his work, not just in these days, but in days ahead. The truth is when we arrive, if we're looking to arrive at a conclusion of how we understand what the Lord's doing in Wilmore, is to just confess that God's at work. But to realize that he's at work here, and he's at work in your life, and he's at work in your heart also. When I was a kid, I, I remember uh, there was a, an, an adult version of this called Experiencing God. I remember when I was a fifth grader, I walked through Experiencing God for Kids in my son, faithful Sunday school class at First Baptist Church, uh, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. And, 
And uh, Charles and, and Gail Humpson were our teachers in that. And I remember Charles, he used to have a voice that sounded like the guy off Unsolved Mysteries. I don't know if you've ever watched that before, but I was always like enamored by it. I'm like, oh, this guy's just got such a captivating voice. And, you know, he, he says in the very first week, um, one, of the, one of the basic tenets of experiencing God is that we confess that God is always at work. And we get to join him, as Steve invited us into. He's always at work. And he's been at work in significant ways this week, some of which have taken place at Asbury, some of which have taken place in places that weren't on TikTok or Facebook or Instagram. But we acknowledge his working and his moving all the same. We're always invited to join him in his work. And I think one thing that lands on us as a church and as me as a, one of the pastors here is how are we going to get to join God in his work and the ripple effect of what his spirit has done, has stirred, has moved in the lives of students, both at Asbury's campus, on UK's campus, hopefully at Transy's campus, and people all through our area. How do we get to discover um, what he's up to and join him in it? And so I've, I've kind of gone to uh, the word this week a lot. I, I mean, I feel like I should say that every week, but, but specifically aligned with just my heart bursting in joy and in celebration for what the Lord's doing at Asbury University. And, and in my conversations with people, it's been um, uh, it's been interesting to like see where the Holy Spirit has taken them in a journey in the Word of, of the Lord and, and what He's highlighted to them. And, and for me, one of the things that I've kind of uh, given my week to and given a lot of my thoughts to have been looking at how Jesus specifically interacts with crowds. Um, it is interesting to see Jesus interact with crowds in the New Testament. He has a number of interactions. You know, like in Mark chapter 2, there's an interaction where the house is so full of crowd of people that people that are bringing their friend in need can't even get to him. You may have heard the story. They decide to take an alternative path, and instead of waiting at one of the entries of the, of the house, they actually go through the roof. There's a, a moment where he ends up at a crowd that's a crowd around a pool, a pool that's supposedly for someone's healing, and he meets a man who's been a part of this crowd for literally 38 years, and he says to the man, do you want to be made well? He speaks to the individual in the midst of the crowd. There are crowds that... Um, that so engulfed him that it took a faithful effort from a, a lady that was struggling with an illness to reach out and touch the hem of his garment. There were crowds that so were enamored by his presence that they actually kind of boxed out, there's a basketball term for you, kind of boxed out um, a man that Jesus actually wanted to seek and save, a man named Zacchaeus. Uh, and, and in doing so, this is a specifically inter interac or interesting interaction, in doing so, the crowd that gathered to be in the presence of God grumbled at Jesus's mission. Now, isn't that interesting? Jesus's mission was Zacchaeus in that moment, and the crowd couldn't understand why he wanted to hang out with a sinner such as Zacchaeus. There's a moment in the crowd in John chapter 6, which we're going to talk about today as a little bit of a framework uh, for where we go, where, where Jesus shows up, and there's a crowd of people, 5,000 men, and what we can speculate is thousands of other men and women, and speculate rightly with, with the text. He shows up, and he notices immediately that they've not been fed. They've not eaten anything. And he says, we got to feed these people. He kind of jokingly says to one of the disciples, maybe the one that had some awareness of their budget, uh, to Philip. And he says, would you go get him food? And Philip's like, we don't have the money for this. Like, are you kidding me? There's thousands of people here. We don't have the money to feed all these people. And Jesus kind of almost tongue in cheek is like, hey, I'll take care of it, you know? And, and he gets a young man with five loaves and two fishes. And he comes before this just, you know, absolutely crowd of people on the hillside. And he starts to pass out loaves and fishes. And to everyone's shock and awe, not only did they have enough to go around, but they had bushels upon bushels left over 
to collect the excess of what God had done, right? This is a pretty monumental moment for the crowd. So much so that the crowd gets fired up and starts declaring, you must be the one, the prophet of whom we waited for. And Jesus says that the, this is so odd. If you've ever read John chapter six, at that declaration, he runs and hides. Okay, he runs away, runs to the mountain and hides. And it's like, wait a minute. Like, isn't that what he wants us to say? Isn't that what he wants us to understand him as? But his response was your problem, crowd, is that you just wanted me for the food I would give you. You didn't want me for me. Jesus ended up leaving the mountainside from that event, crossing the sea. He did so in a a bit of a flexy way. He walked on water to the boat and uh, joined the disciples across the sea. And the next day, the same crowd comes and follows him. and, And they say, we want more of you. And Jesus corrects them. He says, you don't want more of me. You want your fill of fishes and loaves. But here's what I've come to do. I've come to show you the work of the Lord. And then they ask him this in John 6, 28 and 29. What must we do to be doing these works of God? And Jesus answered, this is the work of God. that You believe in him who he has sent. And later on, a few verses later in verse 35, he expresses this even more um, to the condition of their hearts. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever comes to me shall never thirst. Um, that's an important framework for us today as we go in our journey in the text because this, this phrase gives us a lens to the rest of the scriptures unlike never before, that the work of God, the, the works of God are to believe in the one that he sent. That's a, when I was a kid growing up, I used to, to read highlights magazines at my doctor's office. I don't know if you, some of you don't even know what a magazine is. It's fine. Um, you're too young for that, you know, but, but highlights magazines would have like these like hidden images in them. And if you put on like a set of the 3D glasses, you could see like different pictures within the kind of scrambled picture. And for those of you that are totally lost by what I'm doing, just go watch one of the National Treasure movies. I'm pretty sure there's a scene kind of like that in there where they're like looking at some Ben Franklin conspiracy or something. But anyway, um, this verse that this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent, can kind of get to work like a set of lenses as we look through the text, especially into the Old Testament where we're going to be today. Why do we bring this up? Why do we give you this backstory of Jesus' interaction with this crowd in John chapter 6? And it's this. It was true in Israel, in in ancient Near East. It's true today. It's true in Asbury. It's true in Lexington. It's true on on the place you work. It's true in the street you live on. Hungry people are everywhere. As I was standing in the back of Hughes Auditorium on Tuesday or on Monday night, I stood there with a man named David Thomas. David is a, gosh, he's such a good friend, godly man. He has been uh, working with the leadership at Asbury, stewarding this moment incredibly well, um, been, been praying about revival and stewarding revival for, I don't know, Kurt, how long? Four decades? Like this is, he's been after it for a while. And we stood in the back of Hughes Auditorium and we saw the lines and we saw the traffic and all these things. And he said, Andrew, people are starving starving for truth. They're so hungry. And some of them are going to find what they're looking for here. Some are going to find it here, but all of us have the invitation to find it in Christ. And TikTok, this week, it's been told, I've not done the research myself, so this is secondhand research. I kind of draw the line with TikTok, my being 38. That's one I just don't, you know, for me. Um, maybe when, when my girls get it at some point, they'll have to have a policeman on it like me and their mom. But, but right now, um, over 2 billion views of the Asbury Revival on TikTok, social media. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, I, I couldn't even begin to tell you. The reality is, 
that's not just an awe-inspiring number. That is a confession that people are hungry. People are wondering. That people have, um, you know, they are perplexed. They are, they, are, they are craving something that's going on that they uh, might have missed out on lest not have been for social media to invite them in. And this week, we get a glimpse of that hunger. I have literally walked by tens of thousands of people this week in Wilmore, Kentucky. My wife, as she walks across the campus that she works on, um, is moved to tears every time she sees the expectation and the adoration that so many, not just dozens or hundreds, but thousands have that are coming to campus. And the fact that I think there's something for us to see here is that, that Jesus came so that we might find the fulfillment of our hunger in him. Not in an event, not in a moment, not in a, uh, something else, but, but purely in him. And, and the truth is, as I said before, your family members have hungry people in them. Your neighborhoods have hungry people in them. Your workplaces have hungry people in them. Uh, this city, this state, this nation, this world is full of hungry people. And there were not only hungry people in Asbury, there's not only hungry people in Israel, but there will be hungry people tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. And Jesus came, Jesus came so that we might see and recognize him as this right here, the bread of life that satisfies our hunger. In fact, when he's tempted from, by the devil in, in, his, in his wilderness temptation, um, Satan comes before him in a moment of fasting, and Jesus says, man doesn't live by bread alone. It's not bread that satisfies the hunger of his heart, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That being said, we're going to look at a word from the mouth of God um, as, as written and, and expressed from psalmists, um, to the choir master, the sons of Korah in the Old Testament, Psalm 85. And I just want to invite you to turn to Psalm 85 or, or phone your way over to it, app your way over to Psalm 85, and to stand with me as we read um, the word this morning. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turn from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God, of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people might rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but not let them turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss one another. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Um, Jesus, we just pray that as we just take this verse, these verses, and we dine on them, that we are satisfied in things of you today. We pray that you give us an appetite that only you can quench and a thirst that only you can satisfy. And Jesus, we pray that we find this in your word and we pray that your spirit just um, lead us to this truth um, that you've given us today on how we even uh, live and move and breathe and, and not just in response to what has been happening in Wilmore and Asbury in our area, um, but as, as we've already prayed this morning in contribution with, in partnership with, and in participation with. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Um, I mentioned earlier that we read John chapter 6 to give us different lenses. And one of those reasons is for us to look 
at Psalm 85. Now, I want to be clear. I'm a purist when it comes to this stuff. I, I believe that Psalm 85 was absolutely perfectly written, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and written for uh, the, this occasion, the, this moment for the choir masters, uh, for those that, that are the people of Israel, the people of God, uh, to sing and to celebrate and to recognize. But I also think the Holy Spirit absolutely knew that when we viewed this passage some 3,000 years later, that we would have the vantage point of viewing it through the lens of the finished work of Christ. And so we don't get to pull Jesus out of the equation and how we view this text. It's with that in mind, with those lenses on, we got to see a different picture in our Highlights magazine, right? With those lenses on, uh, we go to, to this word today. Lord, you are favorable to your land and restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and you covered their sin. We're going to pick those two verses out at the beginning here. Um, in the Old Testament, how did God cover people's sin? You know, he did so, one, sometimes he did so in his own righteous declarations. He found people righteous, people like Noah, people like Abraham, and he declared them righteous, which only he can do. He declared them righteous in part uh, because, as Hebrews 11 would tell us, because of their faith towards him, that they can do nothing to please him outside of faith. Uh, he, he also declares them righteous because of his own good will and his own good way. Uh, and he set up systems to keep those he declared righteous in righteousness. For those of you that are unfamiliar with those systems, they were systems of sacrifice. He set these up with, with a kingdom of priests, one that began with a guy named Melchizedek, and then a, a guy named Aaron that was Moses' brother. And he set up these sacrificial systems so that men, of heads of households, or, or people on behalf of community, uh, or, or priests themselves could come before the Lord and offer a blood sacrifice in the, in the you know, way of a bull or a ram or uh, a dove or, or some, some other animal um, as a sacrifice that would be appropriate for the sins of the people. And it was in participating in this structural system that God's righteousness was granted and his forgiveness was activated. Now, we believe that in the Old Testament, all of that happened as a forerunner, as a precursor to what we would see in Christ. And so with our Jesus lenses on, we see through, through the truth that we would find in Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, we see that that system is now obsolete. It's not needed anymore. We don't have to participate that way, but rather we have a great high priest in Christ himself. And he did more than present an animal on our, our behalf. He himself went forward for our sins himself. We recognize that verse 1 and 2, that he forgave the iniquity of the people and covered their sin, are completed in the work of Jesus. So that leaves us a question. Who pardons sin like our God? No one does. No one pardons sin like our God. And how much of our sin, how much of their sin was covered? This is not a rhetorical question. How much of our sins are covered? All of them. Do you believe that? I believe it because it's in the Bible, but there are times that when I look at my life that I'm pretty convinced there's got to be a sin or two that was the exception to that rule. And God's got to be frustrated with how I just can't get it right in that area or in that venue or in that thought. He's got to be frustrated that my pride shows up time and again. He's got to be frustrated that, that my greediness. He's got to be frustrated that my enviness. He's got to be frustrated that those things. And so, yeah, he forgives most of my sin, you know, the kind that I'm aware of, but there's some that he might not. That's what the enemy plays tricks with on me, and I bet I'm not the only person in the room. There are probably people that say, oh, he probably forgives their sin or their sin. They pray at the altar. They sing loud. They have their hands up in worship. They probably know covered sin, but I don't know that I can't. Friend, I, I want you to take Psalm 85 to heart. When Jesus forgives you, he covers all your sin. And there's a little word in there. It says Selah, right between verse 2 and verse 3. 
And that word is actually uh, expected and intended to be a holy pause as you read through this psalm. To say that he covers our sin, all of it. Exhale. He covers our sin. That's really good news. Verse 3. He withdraws his wrath. You withdraw your wrath and you turn it from your hot anger. Okay, now, when the sin, when sin is fully covered, which we see in verse 2, the wrath of God is fully satisfied. But here's something that sticks out here, right? You put these two verses together. Sin requires God's wrath. It does. It deserves it. It demands it. We got to sit in that sometimes when it comes to recognizing what we bring to the table. We got to sit in that. But we also have to sit in this truth that God delights in withdrawing his wrath from us. He does. He delights in it. That's only one half of the equation. The other half is this. God delights in withdrawing his wrath, but he delights in withdrawing his wrath because he joyfully put forth his son. He joyfully put forth Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 31, 32, that because God did not spare his son, we get all these things as well. Verse 4, it's, it's in that joy that he put forth his son, that he delights in withdrawing his wrath. Verse 4, that we have this promise, restore us or return us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Return, to, uh, return us again to you, O Lord. Turn us back. The returning of wayward sinners is the one that, uh, it, to the one that saves it is not met with anger, but with mercy and grace, with love and compassion. I've learned this in my life and ministry. I've also just learned this in my life as a person. Um, we are tempted to believe that confession hurts people. You ever, you ever had something confessed to you that was pretty tough news, pretty hard news, something you felt betrayed, you felt used, you felt um, wronged, you felt deceived, whatever. Confession in our culture, we, we are tempted to believe that it, hurt, that it hurts people. But here's the actual truth. Your confession has never hurt anyone. Your sin has. It's sin that hurts people, not confession. Confession is the appropriate step that the Lord would require for us as we pursue repentance, forgiveness, grace, and ultimately a total change of direction. Your sin is what hurts people, and your sin is what hurts God. Now, it's different for God, right? Like we, when I've been confessed to something that's hard or, or difficult, or I've been the one confessing, I'm usually telling someone that's got no clue. But with the Lord, he has full awareness of every place we've misstepped, of every wrong we've ever done, of everything we've ever done to hurt him. He has full awareness, and he eagerly awaits our confession, because he knows that our confession is not nearly as much about his knowledge as it is about our agreement that we need to be people that repent. Confession doesn't bring anger. Confession doesn't bring hurt. Sin does. Confession might feel like a disordering in a moment, but it is a much needed, it is a much needed God-given journey to reorder our lives around the things of Christ and to experience his grace. Verse 5 as we keep going, will you be, ang will you be angry with us forever? Uh, will you prolong your anger to all generations? Um, you know, that I think we're, we're tempted to, to see God as somebody that's just perpetually going to be frustrated uh, with our behavior. So we're tempted to see, but that's not the truth when we put on our Jesus glasses, right? Is God going to be angry with us forever? Will there be a day that God stops being angry with his people? Yeah. And in fact, from our vantage point, that day has already taken place. When I do weddings, I, I always say to people, thank you for letting me be part of the second most important day in your life. 
the day that a husband and a wife say yes to one another, because the most important day in your life, you actually weren't even living. The most important day when of your life actually happened when Jesus went to the cross. You weren't even there, but your sin was there, even though you weren't. And that's the most important day of your life. And you get to agree with that and, and, and embrace that and believe in that and walk in that. And, and those two things together, it's kind of like part A and part B. So your most important day was actually his work. And then part B to that is the day that you apply that to your life because you put your faith and trust in Christ. You believe in him. Those are the most important days of your life. Your wedding day, the highest it could possibly be is number two. Because there was a day in the history, a literal day, that the anger of God ceased because of the work of Jesus. Because Jesus went to the cross for my sin and for yours. Because he went to fulfill the, 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 the anger of the Lord, the wrath of the Lord against all sin and all those that would believe in him, there's a day that God's anger ceased. The psalmist asked a question, we can declare a truth, right? The psalmist asked, will there be a day that your anger or, or, or that your wrath ceases? And we can say with certainty and confidence, yes, because Christ was crucified and Christ was raised again. Romans 5.8 says that God had demonstrated his love for us in this. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do you feel like the Lord sees you? There's a song, it's one of my favorite hymns. It's called Before the Throne of God Above, and it has a line, maybe the second or third verse says this, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him, Jesus, and to pardon me. Do you feel like the Lord looks on you with pardon? And if you don't, would you like him to? Because all it requires is for you to believe, as we read in John 6, this is the work of the Lord, that you believe in the one that he sent. Then verse 6. This is kind of the theme of, of this whole uh, chapter in the Bible. Verse 6. Will you not revive us again, that your people might rejoice in you? There's two things going on here, I believe. Uh, and two kind of unique postures of work. There's God's work and our work, but our works are different. His work is the work of revival. Do you know who does revival? God does. And he does so in a Trinitarian way. The father um, has the posture uh, in revival as a, a loving father who's, who cannot, literally cannot be disappointed in his children. He can only be loving and kind and steadfast and, and gracious. You might say, well, I thought you said God hates sin. Well, he does which is why he took it out on the second Trinitarian part, the son that was put forward. Father loving, gets to look with love and admiration and, 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 and peace and grace onto his kids. Why? Because Jesus the son was the satisfactory atonement for our sin and our shame. He took it all. Colossians chapter 2, we walked through the book of Colossians as a church. Colossians chapter 2 says that he nailed every offense to the cross and in doing so permanently shamed the evil one. That he has forgiven us of every wrong we could ever do. And so the work of revival is not just the father loving, looking on and lavishing his children with love, but it's him doing so because Jesus was put forth as the, as the appropriate sacrifice for our sin and the risen and reigning king. And the third thing is the spirit, Trinitarian, father, son, what's the spirit do? There is the spirit in, in moments of revival seeks to remind us of the things of Christ. Now, a lot has happened in revivals in our city and around our city this week. There have been stories of, of transformation, stories of healing, stories of, of forgiveness and reconciliation, and they're all beautiful, and they're all rewards. But I can tell you, if you ask me with, with confidence, what has the Holy Spirit been up to this week? I could say he's been up to a lot of things. 
The Holy Spirit's been up to a lot of things this week. He's been up to renewal. He's been up to, to putting families back together. He's been up to, to mending brokenness. He's been up to proclaiming freedom and liberty for, fe- for people. He's been up to forgiving people. He's been up to, 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 to sa- saving people and seeing people set free. But the thing that I am convinced of that he's been up to more than anything this week is he's been up to reminding everyone that would listen about Jesus. John 14, 15, and 16, as Jesus himself talks about the helper that will come, he says, this will be what he does. He will be a witness to me, and he will remind you of the things of me. That's his primary role in the world, is to be a cheerleader and a champion for the person and work of Jesus Christ. In fact, um, J.I. Packer uh, talks about revival in a a quote that I landed on this week, Uh, and he says this, He says, revival is the visitation of God, which brings life to Christians who have been sleeping and restores a deep sense of God's near presence and holiness. Thence springs a vivid sense of sin and a profound exercise of heart and repentance, praise and love with an evangelistic outflow. So God's work in revival or of revival is a loving father that loves us because of the work of his son and that in the midst of those two things, the Spirit hovering around, cheering us on, championing us to remember the things of Christ. That's the Father's work in revival. Our work in revival is to believe, and because we believe, to have a heart postured in repentance, in praise, in worship, in love, and to let the overflow of that experience be one that witnesses and tells and communicates to others. God's work in revival is to pour out His love and His lavishment on us. Our work in revival is to believe more and more and say yes more and more. Can you have the fullness of God in your heart? Absolutely. Can you have more? Also, yes. It's mind-blowing. I don't know how it works. You can have the fullness of God, and he still offers you more. Kurt and I have gone round and round about this over, over the years of our friendship. Like, how can you have it all and still get more? You know, it's, it's crazy, but it's also true. Verse 7. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Look at this in verse 8. Let us hear what the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, and to his saints, but not let them turn back to folly. This is really important here, verse 7 and verse 8. Notice in verse 7 it says, show us, show us. Let us see your steadfast love, O Lord. And verse 8 it says, let us hear. You notice those two sensory um, verbs in there? Let us see and let us hear. Show us and let us hear. Now, I don't know about you, in the context of, of what's going on here in Psalm 85, it's been a journey of us understanding our sin, responding to it, um, laying bare before the Lord, being, having hearts of confession and repentance. I don't know about you, but when I've messed up and I go to my authority, I kind of have an expectation to what I might see and hear, right? Like I remember growing up as a kid, fifth grader, Saffle Street Elementary, Principal Max Workman, and his principalship, if you call it that, I don't know, his leadership, um, was things of legendary. Like, did you all grow up terrified of the paddle that was in your principal's office, even though that probably didn't exist? Like, oh, have you heard of what happens when he go to the principal's office? You know, he's got a, he's got a huge wooden paddle with nine-inch spikes, and they're electrified, right? Like, just these, like, awful, like, mythical things. And, and when I have gotten called out in school, so I'm also confessing to my girls right now, and had to go to the principal's office, I made a walk of fear and shame because I knew what I was going to expect on the other side of principal workman's office. I knew to expect anger. I knew to expect punishment. And I knew to expect wrath. And when I got in there, he's like, Andrew, how you doing? What you doing in here today? You know, like kind of talking to me like, now you know better than that. Like there was no paddling. (laughs) There was no yelling. There was no punishment. There was no pain. 
but there was a lot of need that I was in the wrong. Does that make sense? I had to have a keen awareness that I was in the wrong. When you have messed up and you're about to let it be known to the person you've messed up before, what do you expect to see in here? Answering this question will say a lot about the identity you walk in in Christ. Because there's some of us that have messed up. And as we approach the Lord, we expect to see and hear an angry God that's vengeful and spiteful towards us, that's tired of our neediness, that's frustrated with the places that we sin. We expect to hear a God raise his voice and get stern with us. We expect him to say, how can you not figure it out? Have you not read everything that I've written to you? Because some of us might have had dads that way. Some of us might have had bosses that way. Some of us might have had coaches that way. And if we're not careful, we'll let all those things be a projection onto how we view the Lord. That as we, uh, people that, that are sinful, people that have great need, as we come before the Lord, we expect anything but his steadfast love to be displayed. And we expect anything but peace to be spoken over us, right? Well, this is a sign of revival in your heart and in mine. That when we approach the throne of God with our needs and with our faults, we're not met with anger or rebuke or punishment. We are met with steadfast love and peace and grace. So much so that it shocks us and we don't return to our folly. I don't use the word folly very much in my day-to-day life, um, but the word folly essentially means uh, going on living in a way that, that denies what I've experienced. Um, if you've experienced the love of the Father through the person and work of Jesus, you can't go back to your ignorance. You can't go back to the way that you thought he would once be met in your sin and in your shame. But it should be a transformative experience that says, I can with confidence confess my sins to the Lord, to hear from him, to let him know my needs, and in confidence know that when he speaks, it'll be peace to these ears. And when I see him, It'll be his love and grace that grants us salvation on display. What a beautiful, what a beautiful picture of a walking in true revival looks like. And then we skip down to verse 12 and 13. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. Um, actually, I can't miss verse 9 real quick. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, fear him that glory may dwell in our land. I want to I want to take that phrase, that glory may dwell in our land, and go to 12 and 13. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Uh, when we look back at verse 9, and it says, His salvation is near. It accompanies those who fear him. It accompanies those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. That's been my prayer this week. That the outpouring that's happening at Asbury just be, ramps it up, that glory be, his glory be made known in our land, that it dwell here. And so my question to you is, where do you desire for his glory to dwell? Do you have that keen awareness over your home? You pray for his glory to dwell in your home and the way that you interact with your family or with your friends. You might have roommates, you might have uh, wife and kids or husband and kids at home. But what would it look like if our prayers started to be like, Lord, may your glory dwell here. May it be, may, may our interactions with each other, how quick we move to forgiveness, how much we're patient with one another, how, how, how much we honor one another. May what's known from our house be glory. Do you desire for glory to dwell in your neighborhood? your workplace, maybe among your extended family. This week, I, I get the privilege of preaching the funeral of my grandmother of 91 years on Tuesday. Um, it's uh, an honor and a privilege to be able to do that and to honor the Lord and to honor Mima in a special way. I'm her only grandson. Um, her son-in-law is also a pastor, my dad, but he, he passed the buck to me on this one, and it, it's a joy to say yes to that. 
Um, but when I think about even our extended family, like there's places in our family that glory doesn't dwell. Goodness, I want it to. My heart, my heart wants it to. And another sign of revival is that we are people that, that, are, that are not just aware that our identity changes and that when we go before the Father that he meets us with steadfast love and with kindness and with peace. But there, he's people that imparts upon us a desire to see his glory dwell everywhere. And then this promise in verse 12 and 13, that the Lord gives what is good and this land that his glory is going to dwell in will yield an increase. How has God given you what is good? How's he giving you what is good? That's a rhetorical question somewhat, but it's also one that you should answer with the people closest to you. Do your, do your kiddos know what the Lord's given you that is good? Are they aware? Does your family, do your friends, do, or, or do we take the credit? Do we take God's credit all the time? Your coworkers, your, your neighbors, are they aware of the good gifts that God gives and ultimately the best gift that God has given, which is Christ himself? And then verse 13, righteousness will go before you. This is kind of the final commission of this chapter of how we walk in this revival that he's, he's given us and benefited us with. Righteousness will go before you and make his footsteps of way. I've heard Kurt say plenty of times in conversations and in times of prayer, um, God's better at redemption than you are messing it up. No matter how good you think you are at messing it up, God's better at redemption. And this is a verse that accompanies that, right? The wrong step you take next week, God already took it correctly. And he did it for you. When you stumble and fall, don't worry. You have a savior that took that step for you perfectly. So that means you can get right back up and continue walking as if you never took a wrong step. But that only applies. It only applies to people that have put their faith and trust in Jesus. When we walk in the finished work of Christ, it's a confession that every step we take, we are desperately needy. You've heard me say this before. I'll say it again. I'll say it till I'm blue in the face. In day-to-day life in the United States of America, it is a, an offensive statement to call someone needy. If you're a boss and you have a needy employee, it's frustrating. If you're a teacher and you have a needy student, it's frustrating. A more mature student that's less needy would be better. A more mature employee that's less needy would be better. If you're a parent and you have a needy child, you think to yourself, one day they'll be more mature and a little less needy. And, and that, this process, this cycle just continues. The problem is it's the exact opposite in the kingdom of heaven. The more mature you are in Christ, the more aware you are of your desperate neediness. The more aware you are of every step you take, you couldn't take without the things of Christ. And in fact, like my heart resonates with 2 Corinthians 12, that, it's, that his grace is sufficient for us in every weakness. And it's actually in our weaknesses that we are made strong in the things of Christ. You're going to take wrong steps and turns. You're going to stumble and fall. Sometimes you're going to crawl. But praise be unto God, you have a Savior that because of your trust in Him and because of His work on the cross and victory over the grave, He's already taken those right steps for you and He'll take these hard steps with you. And so as we come to communion today, as Steve already invited us to, and we experience brokenness and we experience um, you know, the sweetness of His sacrifice, and his bloodshed for us. Uh, I want you to picture, and I don't know if you're going to come get one of the cups and take it back to your seat, or, or if you're going to take it at the, at the little table or whatnot. I, I'm not telling you where to do that. But I want you to picture that once you finish taking communion, if you, if you so choose to, that you've got to take a step from there. You've got to take a step. And my question is, what step from here? What step from a week of revival? What step from experiencing a movement of God is Jesus requiring of you? 
What step of faith is he asking you to take? And, and, and we sometimes get caught up in what's 100 steps down the road, don't we? We get caught up in, in well, I don't know how I'm going to take that step six months from now. He's not asking you that. What steps can you take today? Are there faithful steps that the Holy Spirit is highlighting to you to take today? Some of you might take a step towards him today that you never have. It could be a step in confession or repentance. Some of you need to take a step of reconciliation towards people. Some of you need to take a step of forgiveness. Some of you need to take a step of confessing a great need that you have or a place of sin. But I know this, for every single one of us, there's a faithful and obedient step required. And I am praying that we each have the boldness to take it. But I don't want you to feel alone in that. As you come take communion and as we respond in song, I'm going to ask some people to just kind of stand up around the room uh, as people that are willing to pray for other people. If you're a family group leader in here, that offer is extended to you. If you're one of our elders or one of our leaders in any capacity, um, I would ask you to just make yourself available. You know, um, I called out Heather and Jeff in separate services last week, so I'll call them out today. They can make themselves available to, be pray, to pray with people. And if you say, I, there's a step I need to take. There's a step the Holy Spirit's asking of me, but you're terrified to take it. We would love to pray with you today. So maybe your first step is to say, I need prayer to take the next step that the Lord is asking me to take. And we would love to pray with you. We would love to pray for you. And we would ask that you also pray for us as people that are trying to be obedient to what it means to follow Jesus. I don't know what the ripple effect of God's movement in and through Wilmore is going to be. I have no idea. But here's what I do know. It's going to require faithful steps in obedience of the people of God to continue to follow what the Spirit of God is up to. Because when that ends, God's not stopping working. When, when whatever the, the gathering or the more formalized gathering happens, and it might not end for 30 years, I've got no idea. But I know this, there's only one that works for eternity, and that's Jesus himself. And in, because of his eternal working and eternal outpouring, we're required to follow after him. So what steps are required from you? Lord, train our feet and train our hearts to walk in faith and obedience in the things of Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, so, thank you so much for today. Thank you for just the truth of this text, the truth of your word. Thank you for uh, giving us the gift of, of Psalm 85 centuries ago that you might tune our hearts to it today. Um, Lord, teach us just a great uh, humility and awe over your work in the world, um, your work even in our specific area. But Lord, also... Train our hearts, train our feet, take faithful steps of obedience even today. Lord, I pray over those in this room that, that you, your spirit is already stirring and highlighting um, the next step for them. I pray that you give them confidence and boldness, um, whether that's a step towards reconciliation or repentance, a step towards forgiveness or healing, a step towards um, you know, relinquishing our pride, a step uh, away from an addictive behavior, Lord, whatever it might be. I pray that they come here in faith to this altar. Come here and receive prayer. Come to your table. Take, eat, and receive the, your body broken, your bloodshed, and take steps of faith, cheered on by a perfect heavenly Father who sees their sin no more. That's in your holy and precious name we ask these things. Amen.